Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I'm here today with my honored guest, Mrs. Hadassah Lieberman. We are here to discuss her new book, Hadassah, An American Story, published by Brandeis University Press, 2021. Hadassah, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here you know, to talk about something that means a lot to me. Absolutely. Um, As we begin, um, what inspired you to write your life story? What was the writing process like for you? Well, Well, what inspired me, look, my life was such that I had lived this unusual life with a man I married and at a later point in my life. And so we learned so much together and following a birth and an immigration with parents who were from another country, spoke a different language, knew different, would tell me all the time, uh, you know, in Yiddish, shouldn't dress like that or shouldn't do this with your hair. Yeah. And then to become a senator's wife and to become part of the country and campaigns and speeches. Of course, this was something that I wanted to get out to people. I wanted to speak to people and I wanted to relate to people who got divorced, who were immigrants, who went through campaigns. So it was a natural culmination of everything. What did you learn about yourself during the writing process? What did I learn? Well, I learned something I knew that I don't have total patience for all these little details, which is bad. And my husband's always saying, oh, my God, the typos in my emails, they're awful. They end up with funny words by accident, you know. But I learned that it's important to work hard, and I knew that, but with a book, it's so much work. And you keep hoping people will want to read it. And the truth is, you don't really, you don't really know what transpires that makes people more interested. But I knew from our lives that a lot of people read the book and told me how they didn't really know me fully. And that was funny because these are people who've known me for a long time. Yeah. Wow. What was a typical Shabbos like during your years in Washington when Joe was a senator? What what was a typical Shabbat dinner like? Well, there's, you know, our typical was unlike anyone else because, you you know, the only Shomer Shabbat um, senator in the history and I don't know if it was the only kosher home, but close, if not total. And um, it was, we had Shabbat. 
Now, whether Joe had votes or not didn't matter because we were having Shabbat. That's when it, it happened on Friday night until through the end of Shabbat, Saturday night. So it would either be just him coming home after a full week and sitting down at our Shabbat table with whichever kids were able to be there. And our littlest uh, was always there because she was the smallest and the others had gone on to jobs or school or whatever, and they would come. And then um, we had campaigns for the Senate. So we ended up, but it was in the state of Connecticut, for the state of Connecticut. So most Shabbats were always at home or we'd have to go to Hartford or Fairfield County, but that's all rideable and deliverable before Shabbat starts. And what was amazing is Joe's first assistant was a born again Christian who once she was told exactly about the timing of Shabbat, she said, okay, Rav, Senator, it's time to leave. You have to get home. It's almost Shabbat. So those were the kinds of experiences that we had with so many people who all of a sudden found out about Shabbat through us wow. or, or having a Shabbat when Joe knew this often happened. And all of a sudden there was going to be late votes on a Friday night and he mm -hmm. had to be there. He said, look, Adasa, let's move down to the Senate. So I brought my white tablecloth, put it on his big desk and all these senators and put my flute down that I had made, prepared. All these senators started coming into his office to partake of a Shabbat meal. They were invited. They would come in and say, oh, can we come? And not everyone was Jewish. Wow. So it was special. Were there any interesting or unusual reactions to Shabbat that you recall? Mm to us, no, absolutely. Well, unusual that Joe would be walking and sometimes he'd have to walk to and from the house, obviously, when Shabbat was occurring. And so many Bible scholars, some of the secret service, some of, well, at that point, it was just the Capitol Police who studied the Bible at church, would love to be able to talk to him on that five mile walk back or forth. And one Friday night, I will never forget this. I try, I didn't, you can't invite people over that often in the Senate week because you don't know when votes will come up, when meetings. So one Friday night I decided, oh, we'll have a few people over. And there were some from government colleagues, just a few small group and then all of a sudden, I get a call from the office that says, uh, Hadassah, you know, he has votes tonight that are going a little later. And I'm thinking, oh, good. Okay. So everyone came to the house and we're sitting down. And um, I said, okay, Joey's not here, but we're going to start you on Shabbat. And so then we, you know, the mozi, the wine, everything. And everyone's sitting around. Finally, we get our main course that I had made. So I help, you know, serve it and show them what we do. And then as we're in the midst of the main course, the key jiggles in the door and in walks Joe with the Capitol policeman coming in with them. 
And then Joe comes in, quickly washes his hands and everyone's sitting there and saying, oh my God, it's boiling hot out. He walked all that way from the Capitol. They were sort of dumbfounded. Now we had knew we did, but who believes it, right? They don't believe it. So he walked in and sat down and you know what? I'm proud. Those are the little things, but those speak to people. Honesty, integrity is the most important to convey precious things. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. What, what was your first impression of Joe <laughs> when you first met him? How did he introduce himself to you? What did you see in him at first? Well, what happened was my girlfriend, who I knew from college, goes to his synagogue, <laughs> medicine, goes to a synagogue in New Haven and she said, she, you know, I'm divorced and this and that. And she said, there's a man in my synagogue who I think you should meet. I think you like him. He looks, your son looks like him. I thought, well, what a weird introduction this is. Okay. So I decide to meet Joey. He walks over to her yard where I was sitting. It's a sunny day. Shabbat. And he starts talking to me, he seemed nice. And she had told me he's, he's a politician, but he's okay. That was her words. So I thought, okay. And he said, um, how about coming out with me tonight? So I said, oh, and he said, I have to go to an event. It's an hour and a half away. It's a political fundraising thing that's going on the other side of the state. And why don't you come with me? So I, I thought, oh, this is, this is an interesting first date. And um, so I got myself together. Of course, my girlfriend said, oh, where are my earrings? I don't like your earrings, you know. But anyway, so I went out and Joe picked me up. Well, of course, we didn't get anywhere to do anything for me to meet this guy till like 1130 at night. We sat and had a drink somewhere and talking to each other. And I thought, oh, boy. Okay, he seems nice. This just weird juxtaposition of places. So he brought me back to my girlfriend's house and he said, maybe I'll have time to see you again, whatever. So he did. So what did I think? I thought he seemed like a nice man, but he had two kids who were teenagers and I had my son. And he was post-divorce for a bit. And I was post-divorce. And, you know, people who have been married and have divorces and have children, they have to be mindful. And I wrote about that in the book. Yes. Not for lecture, but I felt you have to share things with people so they don't make mistakes. No, that doesn't mean that every person who's been divorced can stand to be lectured on anything, but never mind. I tried a bit. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Being the daughter of a rabbi, did you ever struggle with religious observance and religious belief? How did you overcome such struggles and what wisdom could you share to, for other 
individuals and families struggling with religious non-observance? Well, you know, when I was a rabbi's daughter at a younger age, I didn't struggle then, but I was in a community in Gardner, Massachusetts, where, okay, no Friday nights, Shabbat, you know, my girlfriend across the street, Patty Gallant, she hears her name, maybe, was a Catholic with seven kids and the family. So she used to come over and says, oh, I know I'm the Shabbat person. Yes. So she went around doing this or that. And so what I was raised at, my father, my father was the old fashioned disciplinarian. He did, they didn't sort of, oh, what do you think? What is this? That wasn't it. It was Shomer Shabbat. And, you know, in terms of things, there were other people who were, my brother was four years younger. So he felt differently, different experiences. I know, look, religion is really difficult in the sense that life is difficult and we have no idea what we will discover next. I do know that religion, belief in Hashem, God, was something I was brought up with, but at the same time to have parents who are survivors, to not, you know, people now today, we're planning to go to my brother and have Thanksgiving with him and his family. You know, the stuff when we were younger, it was just my brother Ari and me. And so we we were not where there were big communities in New York. We were in Gardner, Massachusetts, near New Hampshire. And none of the people there even comprehended what our background was. But my father believed in God and he taught us. And I think we have to be cognizant, especially during college, you know, and my husband talks about it in some of his books and how he fell away from partaking in too many of the traditions for a bit in college and then came back after. So we have to be cognizant that not everyone can be a big believer in certain things. However, at the same time, Shabbat is a central location that really, I think, strengthens us who observe it. Because all of a sudden, you pull out of this madness of the week and of work and Blackberries or iPads, iPhones and put them down and I will never and I'll say it at at this point even though it's not logically next that I will never forget the Shabbat we spent with then Vice President Gore when he was running for the presidency and it was in 2000 June of 2000 wow when we were supposed to know about this victory or loss, even though we had numbers that were ahead of the opposition, but yes. you know, the Supreme Court waiting, waiting, waiting. And then that Friday, because Al would call 
my husband before Shabbat, because he always knew they told him, and just talked to Joe quickly. And then Joe, obviously they'd said no, goodbye. And he, um, Shabbat Shalom, he hung up the phone and the phone rang immediately. It was yeah. Vice President Gore calling Joey. And I have this in the book. Wow. So I want people to please read these stories. And I call, he called and said, Joe, it's not Shabbat yet. Why don't you come over to our house? So Joe's telling me this as he hangs up the phone. I get a bag. I throw in everything. The Friday night candles, the challah bread, a challah bread cover, and food. I packed together and paper plates so we could just sit there. And we walk in. And Joe is Joe said, oh, he has to, you know, pray. He's doing his pre-Shabbat prayers. And they brought him into a room, went right in, started. And then when I came in, I see it's the Christmas tree room, you know, that they had put together. And there we were. We didn't know if we had won or lost, but, you know, the Christmas tree was up. So it was very special. And then we sat. At the Gore's table. And I'll never forget when Mrs. Gore said, you know, I don't need my iPhone here, my this and that. If they need to get us, they'll get us. And she put it away. Wow. Put all of them because she wanted the quiet. And so, you know what? Shabbat, Shabbat, the other point is that on the campaign trail, and this was the VP campaign, trail that Joe was on. Yes. I'll never forget the Chabad, a Chabad rabbi had come down and he had brought food for us and Allah's, And I said, Rabbi, please, what can we do to help you? What can we do? And he said, you see that young woman? It was someone who was doing a lot of advance work. Mm. He said, Ask her to light the Shabbat candles tonight. And that was so moving to me. And I asked her, and she was from Florida and had nothing to do. She didn't light the candles. And she said, thank you. I will do that. Wow. So those are the lighthearted, great experiences. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um. In regard to your father, Rabbi Shmuel Freilich, are there any sermons or divrei Torah of his that you remember? Did he ever put his thoughts to writing? Oh, he wrote as many sermons. And I've often wanted to pull that together and publish some of the things he said. Of course, he had a, vote, had a note in his sermon book. These are not to be published. You know, my, my father was a man of, he knew what he wanted, what he didn't want. So he had so many lessons and many were to teach us, his children, all the kinds of things he felt were so important to strengthen us. He often told us stories that had occurred and 
he did them in his book that he wrote on the coldest winter. And they were about the stories of how people were just dying as they went through this cold, heavy snow, everything. And there was no funeral. There was no Kaddish mourner's prayer. And he was always saying how it's often some of the simple things like the burial, like the mourner's prayer, like the memories that were lost to so many people who went through this horrible chapter. So we were constantly being raised to be proud of who we are, to speak intelligently about what we did and to move forward because that was part of our task to be American Jews who were special, but who did some traditional things. And we wanted to educate people about them. A lot of lessons, sometimes too many, you know, kids are. Baruch Hashem, thank you for sharing that. Can you recall for us, how did your father escape from Hungary during the Shoah? Well, toward the end, you know, he was um, in a slave labor camp, and so they were marching. And toward the end, he escaped. It was, you know, just before it was almost all over. He escaped with a bunch of men to a Christian home, took them in. They didn't know they were Jewish. They pulled everything off that would identify them. And they were there. And they didn't go to church services, but tried to do tasks around the area. There was a garden, there was, you know, the farm. And he wrote about how that was the case until the liberation. And there's a story I don't really talk about too much, but it's important. I remember when the Russians, my father wrote, the Russians came in and liberated them in the lines of those liberated Jews who had been where he had been and where the others had been in concentration camps. And he remembers a Russian soldier who was distributing food. And the Russians said, I don't know, whatever, Yehudi, is it Yehudi? Or it's another in Russian. And asking, are you a Jew? And my father said, yes. The soldier took what he was going to give him and took it back. And that was a shocking thing for my father to tell us. Because this was liberation. And that's amongst the stories that I remember they imparted to me. How they're... There was a lack of caring for a lot of people by a lot of people, as we know from the stories that are coming out now. Those are the ones that I've read and explored. And so when I was doing my book, I thought, oh, my God, there's so much we know and so little we know. I don't know what other stories happened. My mother didn't have the Auschwitz insignia on her arm 
I never understood. She was, and I have the story that people have to read about how the Nazis came into her town. And that's the beginning of taking over. But that area was captured a bit earlier than further countries like Germany, you know, some of the others taken over earlier in terms of the Jews. How did your mother's inner scars from Auschwitz impact the way she lived her life subsequently? What were your mother's greatest character virtues that you strive to emulate? What can others learn from the example of these traits? Well, first of all, in some ways, those of us who have survivor parents from the Shoah, the Holocaust, we didn't know our parents before this happened. So I only knew from stories that everybody thought my mother was gorgeous, da-da, 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 and everyone just stared at her clothes, you know, all those little crazy stories. That's what I knew about her at an earlier time. Even the diary, which I reprint in this book, well, that were words and things I hadn't heard. I didn't know because she, my mother, had blocked a lot out of her head. I know that's true from what she said. And then seeing some of what had been written, I knew that really was true. And so what? What do you remember? The violent screaming in the beginning when I was a little kid? Because she had nightmares every night. It was just one nightmare after another. My father didn't show what was going on inside. So I have no idea. And my mother was a different type of person. And yet, you know what's amazing? Having been so beautiful and so that she emerged, she wore the right clothes. She wanted to look nice. She wanted to, and she was a rabbi's wife. So we were supposed to be respectful and act accordingly. I couldn't, you know, everyone is going to kindergarten in these big, you know, their hairdos are flying around. She wanted me in my braids or my ponytail. Everyone's going in, all the girls are in pants. She wanted me in a skirt. So it's like she, that's, I knew about her more in terms of, you know, how she moved a bit around herself. And you know what I realized as I go on and I hear more and more and read more and more, we don't get a lot of these survivors totally because what they went through and now that they're dying, both of my parents are not alive. Now that so many of them have died and so few are left, we don't hear the story. My son, Eitan, our second son, writes that chapter in his book about who are the survivors going to be, what generation, because we're losing them more and more. And I think that that's part of the reason I wanted to write this book. And also, I have my children quoted in it. And I wanted to do that. I didn't give birth to all four of my children. They are my children. 
And that was another lesson in one of the books about divorce. You marry, you fall in love with your spouse and it doesn't work in every instance, I know, but you fall in love with them. You have to also bind, be bound with their children. They have to be our children. And it's like our grandchildren. I'm the softa grandmother to everyone. And my husband is Poppy, the grandpa to everyone. So these are the kinds of lessons that we share. And I hope you all read them. Thank you. What do you feel we can collectively do as Jews to advance Holocaust remembrance, to keep the stories of survivors from falling into oblivion? Is there anything we should be doing that we are not? Is there anything we are doing that is failing? Well, I think, you know, that's a tough question. And everyone, so many are trying to answer it with their knowledge, with their expertise, with their psychological backgrounds. Truthfully, there are no answers, unfortunately. We thought we would get to this point. I remember at an earlier, after 2000, we didn't have any any feelings of anti-anything against us. We were out there in the world, all over the country. What is it, I think, that we as American Jews must really work at educating our children in terms of who they are, in terms of how the U.S. was a country filled with immigrants who came to their shores for safety, that the U.S. is a country that respects religious differences amongst people. And the Holocaust is obviously a critical nightmare. And sometimes we see signs springing up that scare us. We don't want anything else rising up. But our children have to be educated if they're Jewish. So I talk from that perspective. They have to be educated about their background, their Judaism, historically, that goes way back and way forward. So it's not just the Holocaust, but to not be mindful of that chapter in our history is horrendous to do to your children, to your grandchildren. Everything has to be done properly, but we educate ourselves to know where we were born, how we were born, what happened at various times, and be mindful. The phrase tikkun olam, repairing the world. That's a Hebrew phrase, and it's repairing the world. What does that mean? That we need to be mindful of repairing the circles we inhabit, the circles around us. That might just be ourselves. That might just be our families, our communities, our religious centers, the country, the world. We have to work 
as fast and far as we can to educate, to share experiences that will make people more mindful of how important their tikkun olam, repairing the world, no matter an inch or many, many kilometers. Thank you for sharing that. Why was your 1995 trip to Eastern and Central Europe significant to you? What was it like visiting this part of the world as the daughter of survivors? That it was outstanding. I remember getting in the plane and traveling. We had a stop in Germany, just briefly on the, you know, the, in the airfield and went on to Krakow and then from, and there were dignitaries from all over the world and Krakow, then it brought us to Auschwitz. And our Arbeit Mach Frei, you know, that work on the gates of Auschwitz gives freedom. And going in there and seeing, my mother had talked a bit about how the latrines, the bunks that crammed together, just these awful stories that we've read about. And there I was, and there I was, Ellie Wiesel was there and Ding Terry's from Poland and walking in to Auschwitz on the arm of one of the dignitaries. And I was so touched to be there. And they took us in to some of the bunks. They took us out to the field. I remember my mother saying that one of the Nazi guards had whipped her sister's neck and just stupid little stories, not stupid. And it was an amazing, and you know, I was there as an American and as the wife of a US Senator and I was walking into Auschwitz, me, the daughter of a survi- two survivors and specifically a survivor in Auschwitz and the stories that my mother had told me and some of which are recalled in the book. And it was an amazing event because all the people who were there had been Jews and Nazi guards. And all of a sudden the world came together with journalists and people and the stories. And some, for some, they had literally been in Auschwitz and they were overcome. And I think that that's an important visit to make. There are a lot of people making that visit, including Polish people who visit and are shown the inside of Auschwitz. So for me, you know, I keep hoping and praying that I don't have see people who are negative again like that. I always believe that we as Americans are beyond that and have lessons to teach our country. So I'm discouraged when people are not articulating how important the U.S. democracy has been and needs to be for a long time to us and to the world. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. 
Why was your 2012 trip to Israel significant for you? Oh, was that the, the March? Yes. Yes. You, yeah, you described well, your... Yes. Yeah. Well, it was significant to me because I had gone to Israel several times, but this one I did for the Coleman people, Susan Coleman, which was a breast cancer group that worked for years to help breast cancer survivors. And we did, I managed to do, I was working with Susan Coleman and we managed to arrange for a march in Jerusalem mm. on behalf with the cancer people in Israel on behalf of survivors of breast cancer who marched. And it was everyone in that march. And I remember my husband who had been visiting and meetings in nearby countries stopped he was able to stop by. We were with the mayor of Jerusalem. And for one moment, the mayor of Jerusalem said, let's turn around. We turned around. We had everyone marching. Everyone. Israelis of every coming from countries in the area being Israeli and Arab women. Palestinian women from the region. And it was, I mean, all these students who were going to school. So to me, to go on that march was very special. I did not know that one day, and I, had, I was working with Coleman, that one day, and I didn't tell this story at all, but when it wow. came to doing this book, I said, oh, I can't not talk about it because it's important to help other women, just like I talked about divorce. Anyway, so I just touched myself and found a little lump. And it was a Sunday night. And I said, Joey, and he said, you have to go to the doctor tomorrow. So I went to the doctor and I was like shocked because it was a lump. And they tested me and found that it was something that had to be taken out. I was lucky it was stage one cancer. But wow, I learned. I went through the ordeal of what so many women are doing up to stage four cancer. And so I remember I had to have the medications, this and that. And I also remember how... My daughter, Hani, who covers her head, she's traditional. And as she said, mommy, you're going to have to get a wig, you know. I said, no, I won't. And sure enough, they said, yeah, eventually your hair's going to fall out. And so now here I am with thick hair, right? Wow. It fell out. Wow. It fell out. And that was like, and I know that's such a superficial thing to react to but that was the hardest part so I got a wig and my hair eventually came back and so it's those those moments wow how did your struggle with cancer change you personally and spiritually 
Is there any wisdom you can share from this ordeal that can help others cope? Well, first of all, the medicines, the, the whole practice with breast cancer from, you know, my time or I don't know, 11 years, whatever more have changed. Everything's changing overnight. And I believe it's important to stick to the medicine on this and to do what you need to do and to realize, and it's always like this with medicine or practices, you have to, everything gets over, you're overwhelmed by instructions and then you deal with it like life in general. So the important lesson I learned was, well, for me, having my husband and we were living in Georgetown, right across from, yes. you know, the hospital and having my husband uh, come with me for treatments at 7 a.m. across the street in Georgetown, because then he'd be busy afterwards, was a real godsend to have him with me sitting there and just being with me. And I'm not saying that's possible for anyone, for everyone. But if you can find a close friend or close neighbor or someone, I realize that closeness with people, but I've always felt that way is critical. And just to be strong and to pray that you will survive this. And obviously there's no magical incantation. And sometimes when we pray, it's like our own magical incantations to ourselves, but we need them because we're human, we're vulnerable. And that's the real point. You realize your vulnerability like you haven't before. I never thought about mortality. You know, you're sort of immortal. You keep moving forward but you lose enough people around you, you start waking up to the new lessons. So that's really what we need to teach our daughters. And even now they are testing earlier. They have better ways of testing. So God willing, you know, I'm happy I went through it and it's not something I had wanted, but I coped and we all fall. So it's a matter of whether you can stand up correctly. Wow. Um, your name is Hadassah, named after the, 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 other, the, the other name of the biblical Queen Esther. Right. Are there any attributes of the biblical Esther that you have found to be a source of strength and inspiration in life? To what degree do you identify with the biblical character Queen Esther as a human being, as a, as a female, is there any relationship between yourself and the character you're named after that you could speak to? Yes. Um, well, you know, the name Hadassah was not an easy name for many people to digest, to learn. There was such mispronunciation. So what I learned is, and now there are many, many different odd, different names we haven't heard before being used. 
But when I had the name Hadassah, everyone was Susie, Becky, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So I always loved the story of Queen Esther and how she was in a spot that was different from all the competitors who had tried to become the wife of the king. And she did it. And her bravery and her ability to literally work to save the Jews from destruction by Haman and his fellow members of his congregation. And I always saw her, yes, she was beautiful, but the beauty that she had inside her spoke gobbles to us and to see the little girls dressed as Queen Esther in their hair and their veils and their dresses and all of the lessons that we learned about our people at that point in time. And my name, let me go back to that for a minute, Hadassah, as I said, it was Hadassah, Hasuda, Hamusa, you know, a million different ways. So that when I got to the Democratic Convention in L.A. and I stood up next to my husband on the stage and looked around and there were signs on the floor, Hadassah, everybody had a Hadassah sign. It was that moment. And I almost cried. All the people had mispronounced my name. And now there I was in blue and white, these waving signs on flags in their hands saying Hadassah, Hadassah, Hadassah. And I realized that Queen Esther was a giant in her world. And gave many of us lessons to copy, to learn about moving forward with strength. When we move with strength and honesty and speak as we should be speaking, we teach people and we're admired if we're honest. And even when people don't know you, they might not like you, it's our obligation to teach them more about ourselves. And sure, surely they will like us better or they'll respect us. I don't care. I want to be respected and I want people to behave accordingly as we do to them. We should all come together properly. So, yes, I learned a lot from Esther. Thank you for sharing that. Um, on, on, along these lines, uh, you have an anecdote in the book where you describe the time when your husband Joe's advisors asked him to keep his religious observance, quote unquote, in check. Why did he refuse to do so? And what does that tell us about him? Well, yeah, he's not, he's not going to keep things that are him that he does in check. The only thing he has to worry about is making sure they understand that there are limitations in an emergency. You're supposed to help someone that's been hurt in a, by a car or this or that. So it's not in, they said in check, but that may have been their problem. They don't get 
the Shabbat laws or some of the other kinds of things we observe. And Joe was basically saying, hey, I'm me. I've been in this political game for quite a few years. I get it. I know what to say, what not to say, how far I go. I'm not going to not do Shabbat, act accordingly, because I'm going to put things in check. There are some people who ask questions, want to know more, and I know what to do. I know, I know what has to be said and what doesn't have to be said. So that was what it was. But sometimes, you know, when people say things, it's, it deals more with perhaps they haven't been able to talk as they are a certain kind of person from a certain background. That's because they're afraid or negative or don't care. That's not Joey. And he wasn't going to become, we're not going to become them. They're not our Queen Esther role models. Wow. Your book's afterword features approbations from Megan McCain. What was your relationship like with her? And can you speak to Joe's relationship with John? John McCain. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was a very special, and I have to say that was, you know, people don't live forever. And unfortunately, one of Joe's very, very closest friends was John. And I met Megan through Joe knowing John, and then he went together to his ranch out in Sedona area, beautiful ranch. And I remember one of the Shabbats that we were out there, he went and bought a kosher grill and kosher steaks and hamburgs with new utensils. And he, you know, does that with all the people he invites for this gathering. And we had our own grill and our own plates. It was so sweet what he did. So I wanted Megan, I asked Megan when I did the book, because she's an American Christian and daughter of John McCain. And I wanted her to articulate something. And it was exactly what she said about my book, about me. It was interesting to her to learn about the Holocaust. She has friends who know things as well. But I was talking about it from a personal perspective, which she probably didn't know about me so much. I had shared some of it. And so we were just very lucky to have someone like John. And when you think about how Joe and John are very different politically, but that had no bearing on what they disagreed on, which they did. Their friendship didn't cloud anything and all the things they agreed on and wanted to work together. So it was, it was quite an experience throughout knowing him and his family. Wow. What drew you to the world of medical philanthropy in recent years? Uh, your book alludes to your own company, HFL Associates, and some of the other organizations and programs that you worked with, such as Sister to Sister, Everyone Has a Heart, etc. What drew you to such ventures? 
Well, you know, I found, and I found this when I was doing the Coleman role in Brazil and Israel and all these very population groups, the Saudi Arabian women who at that point, no driving, but one woman was suffering from breast cancer and talking to everyone, okay, I don't drive a car, but I found as I went forward, actually participating at various groups and educational seminars and visiting some of the countries that women with women are a very strong entity, a very strong group. And when they come together to meet the challenges of religion, and particularly as I saw it in breast cancer, they go beyond ideology. They go beyond political ideas and concerns. We're all sick at a certain point, and we don't want our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors to have the same problems. And we as women in a very strong way can pull people together and increase the power that we have to move forward with doctors, with hospitals. And so I was thrilled to be part of this effort. Amazing. What a remarkable accomplishment to invest in. Thank you. Um, as we bring this interview to a close, what are you involved with presently? What occupies your time at the present moment and juncture? Well, you know, the book took a lot of time and that occupied my intensity of purpose and goals. And then all the times I've had with the media in describing the book. And I do find it to be historically important because I'm communicating something that is a serious topic of concern for me to transmit to others. And I simultaneously, um, still working on some of the boards and the causes that I've, and I don't wanna start to mention everything because I leave one or two out. Or, and so that's been important again, to see how this year and a half, this almost two years. So I did so much at my desk and on the phone. We didn't have, and it's all of a sudden a cognizance of what happens when you don't go to each meeting, when you don't get ready to go out, we all be mindful of how we look, where we are, you know, all that stuff. So I was fascinated by how much we can still do meeting on the phone. And I know some people, and look at the kids at school on the phone. This has been, now obviously it hasn't been a great experience for everyone, but it's been a different experience that they've had to cope with. And we just hope that their education and our abilities in the workforce can still stay intact. 
as much as possible. And that now you go through the streets of New York, there's a revival. Everyone seems to be out, the lights, and you hope the masks too. Yes. Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's been an absolute honor and blessing to have had this conversation and dialogue with you today. Um, as we come to an end, uh, I wanted to close by recommending your book as a wonderful Hanukkah gift for our Jewish listeners uh -huh. and Christmas gift for our Christian listeners uh -huh. and uh, recommend it to people of all faiths. Uh, you want me to hold it up? Sure. Thank you. you thank it. you. Um, to our listeners, this has been Hadassah Lieberman, author of her new book, her, her memoir and autobiography, Hadassah, An American Story, published by Brandeis University Press 2021. Thank you very much for your time thank and generosity. You. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you. Thanks.